Well, good morning, everyone. I look forward to a great time of celebration this afternoon. We hear testimonies, and if you're coming this afternoon, I hope you'll already be thinking of stories that you can share with us and blessings that you've seen throughout the year that enriches the time that we have together and just helps us to be encouraged and causes us to rejoice for the good things that God has given us. So I hope to see as many of you as possible at five. If you're not already signed up, you don't have anything to bring, just come. There'll be an extra plate at the table that we can make for you and plenty of food to go around. So come and join us and fellowship with us. If you've not already, please take the attendance sheets that are there, sign them up, pass them back and forth down the road, get to maybe meet a new person this morning, but we'd like to know who is with us this morning. And please uh, check your cell phones, make sure they're turned to silent so we don't have any interruptions during the service this morning. Dr. Carl Zimmerman was a distinguished professor at Harvard over much of the 20th century. He was a sociologist, and his specialty was study. Ancient Rome, ancient Greece, medieval and modern Europe, and saw warning signs even happening within the United States. In 1947, he published a work called Family and Civilization. And in there, he listed eight major signs that point to the eventual downfall of a society. And as you listen along to what he discovered in 1947, see if you see any parallels with what is going on with our culture today. I'll read some of the signs that he gave. Marriage loses its sacredness and is frequently broken by divorce. Traditional meaning of the marriage ceremony is lost and replaced. Feminist movements abound. There is increased public disrespect for parents and authority in general. An acceleration of juvenile delinquency, promiscuity and rebellion. Refusal of people to fulfill their responsibilities within the family. A growing desire for and acceptance of adultery. An increasing interest in and spread of sexual perversions and sex-related crimes. Now, if Dr. Zimmerman is right, and he has centuries of data to back up his thesis, then there is a great need for us, for the church, to retell and proclaim God's vision for family and for marriage. As we see the fraying of our own society, indeed as our own culture is hurtling toward its own destruction, if we as a church are to have an impact and to bring about cultural renewal, then we need to regain our footing in the Word of God and listen carefully to what the Lord proclaims about the importance of the role of marriage. And then we need to resolve to proclaim and defend and love and live out that view of marriage and the family. As Jesus is now moving with his band of disciples toward Jerusalem, he will continue in his teaching and preaching and healing ministry. And today and next week, as we enter into chapter 19, we will see what he has to say about the important issues of family, marriage, and children 
And as he speaks, it's good for us to listen well, for the stakes are real and even eternal in nature. Well, with that as our introduction, I invite you to stand as we read our passage for this morning from Matthew 19, the first nine verses. And God says to us in his holy word, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord, sober as it is. We do well to listen and take heed. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father, it's moments like these when we recognize that we are in your holy presence and we are in awe of who you are. And as we examine who we really are, we are aware of our great need of your grace and mercy. And so, Father, thank you this morning that in Jesus Christ, grace and mercy is available and lavished. Would you be our teacher this morning? Would you guide us in these moments? Would your spirit be at work in our hearts? Because we need you. So lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Special greeting to those of you joining us online this morning. Thank you for being with us. And we pray that, though you can't be with us here, that wherever you are, you have your copy of God's Word open, and let's study the Word of God together. Good morning on behalf of all of us present here. As you follow along in your sermon outline, I encourage you to turn now to, uh, turn to your sermon outline as we get to our first major point this morning, which is the time of transition. The time of transition. And our text begins. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Jesus had a challenging time in Capernaum with, where he taught the disciples about the nature of the new covenant community, about what is coming as he is ready to go to Jerusalem, preparing them for how they should look and live as his followers. And now as they leave Galilee, he will not return to Galilee until after the, his resurrection from the dead. And we'll see that when we get to Matthew 18. Well, with chapter 19 and verse 1, we begin the fourth major section of the gospel according to Matthew. This gospel has five major sections, each one beginning with something similar to what we see in verse 1. And you can see where the chapters, or the sections end and begin in the listing that is on the screen behind me. Matthew organized well the gospel that he presented. 
His goal was to show the Jewish people that Jesus was the Messiah. And there's a certain order and rhythm to how he presented his material. So our text begins by telling us that Jesus and the disciples leave Galilee. And they're going to go through Judea beyond the Jordan. They've crossed now or gone around the Sea of Galilee or crossed over the Jordan River, one or the other, into neighboring territory that was not officially Israel. They're on the eastern side, if you can imagine in your mind, seeing a map of the Middle East. They're on the eastern side now of the Jordan River, known today as the country of Jordan. But back then, there was a region called Perea, which had a large Jewish population and was referred to in common vernacular as Judea beyond the Jordan, though it was not technically part of Judea and Israel. So between Galilee and the north, and Judea in the south was the region of Samaria. And Jews did what they could to avoid the region of Samaria. So they would cross over to the east, go along the river down to Jericho, and then cross back over into the land of Israel into Judea. They would do this whether they went north or south. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself took this trek several times. So now they've left Galilee, they've crossed over onto the eastern side, they're starting to move south, and as they move south, large crowds followed him. For a few chapters, Jesus has been focused on his disciples, he's been training and equipping them for what is to come, but now the, the time of private teaching, it seems, has come to an end, and now there's more of a visible and public ministry in the life of our Savior, and crowds begin to follow him once again. And all we have is this short, pithy saying, and he healed them there. Now, Matthew doesn't give us any details about the diseases that were healed, nor about any of the recipients of that grace. He just states it as just a reminder to his original Jewish audiences that the Messiah was one who would come and heal. And all that with our time of transition and getting ready, we now move to what is the major point and part of our passage, which brings us to the second major point, God's high view of Mary. We live in an age when many young people are delaying marriage, when marriage itself is brought up for mockery in film and in song, when many are even uh, forsaking it altogether. If they do get married, divorce rates are high. And so what Jesus has to say in these verses is shocking to modern ears. Indeed, even for the original audience, as we'll see next week in part two, they were offensive to the ears that heard them in the first century. But because we take heed of the one who is speaking, we do well to listen. And so we begin with the treacherous teaching. The treacherous teaching. Verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him. And notice the choice of words here. Jesus is on his way south. He's has a ministry, he's healing people, and he's met by some Pharisees, and they recognize him and they approach him not to learn from him, not to approve of him, not to agree with him, but to test him. These Pharisees, they were the self-appointed leaders of the people. They thought that they could put Jesus to the test and keep him in his place because they're threatened by both his teaching and his example. And we will see this period of testing increase because as Jesus moves to Jerusalem, there will be more and more tests that will come. Now, the issue in the immediate context for the testing that would come this morning was the issue of marriage and divorce. Now, Jesus had already spoken of this subject way back 
in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 when he talked about the Sermon on the Mount. But in that context, where Jesus is giving, in a sense, his law as the new Moses, as he ascends the mountain, and as he gives the law on how to live out the new covenant and what that new covenant community looks like, marriage and divorce was kind of tucked into a whole long teaching of discipleship. But here, Jesus is going to go deeper and give a theological and biblical foundation on this important subject. And so we see, and Pharisees tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now remember, they're not interested in being caught, but they're trying to drive a wedge between Jesus and the people. There were different ideas about divorce in those days, about when divorce could be allowed. The Shema'i school was very conservative in its approach, and they said that the law only allowed divorce for immorality. The Hillel school was more progressive, and they said a man could divorce his wife for any reason that he chose. Perhaps he no longer found his wife attractive, or he found someone else, or she burned his dinner, or he just didn't want her anymore. And so these Pharisees come to Jesus, and they're trying to get him to affirm one side or the other. And whichever way he answered, he would offend one major party in that day. They're hoping to divide Jesus from the people and to pit him even against Moses. Now, in the background, the question was not for most Jewish men of the day was whether a man had a right to get divorced, but what were the circumstances under which it could be allowed? Even Jewish men happily married who had no intention of divorcing their wives would have defended the right of other Jewish men to do so. So this became a landmine or a minefield that Jesus has to navigate. But you know, it's not very different today, is it? You start talking about the issues of marriage and divorce and who can get married and who can't and autonomous freedom and our right to do what we want. Oftentimes in the public square, Christians are having a trap laid before them. You don't really believe that old-fashioned tale, do you? After all, love is love. As if somehow we start with man and his experience and we can project it onto God. Now, Jesus is going to show us a better way, a wiser way, and how to speak wisely into a sin-sick and morally confused world. And so we see the divine design. The divine design. To begin the conversation about asking when divorce is okay is to start at the wrong end. Starting by asking one, when one can get divorced implies that somehow divorce is expected and only needs to be regulated. But Jesus will not begin there. He begins with the origin and purpose of marriage to show the beauty of God's plan, the holiness and expectations that God has. And so in that light then, beginning with God's point of view, any breakup of marriage is always to be seen as a sort of evil. Jesus knows who he is. He's the eternal son of God. He's the agent of creation. He's the one through whom all things were made. He upholds all things by the power of his word. You can look at the references on the screen behind me. Jesus knows who he is. He knows where he comes from. And so he's not going to enter into a philosophical discussion about the nature of love or what is a family. He goes straight to the source of truth, the word of God itself. And so he uses a common form of argumentation. 
You see, his opponents in this situation wanted to go all the way back to Moses. But Jesus will go all the way back to the beginning. And so he answers them. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? See, Jesus knows that we can only understand what Moses meant when we go back to the beginning to see what God said. And so when he says, have you not read, this would have been a direct challenge to them and their so-called spiritual authority. They pretended to be the spiritual leaders. They thought they had the proper interpretation of the law, the one who could sit in judgment upon him. But he is quick to put them in their place, for he has shown us again and again that he alone is the one who truly understands the meaning of God's law, who understands the purposes for why God has done what he has done. And so he alone can give the proper interpretation, not only on this issue, but on all issues. It's as if he's saying, hey, you scholars, you trained theologians, you the ones that write the commentaries, have you even read the Bible? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Jesus said from the beginning that God is the creator and we are not self-creating. We live in a context in our day where people think that they can create their own identity as if somehow they have the power to be self-sustaining and self-creating. But God is the one who has created. God is the one who has set the plan. God is the one who gives us the very next breath that we have. And so we need to decide how we're going to wisely use that breath. And God created them, male and female. God, as God, has the power and the prerogative to create human beings any way that he desires. And he chose to create them, male and female, man and woman. As Dr. Leon Morris from Australia says, our sexuality is of divine ordinance. It is intended to be exercised in monogamous relationships of one man and one woman. We live in a morally confused age. And so we need to be reinvigorated and renew our commitment to the word of God that Jesus clearly says that there are only two genders and two sexes. In the mind of God, these two cannot be separated. And in recent days, our universities have been overrun with Marxist interpretations of humanity. It fills up our Hollywood studios. It shows up in media newsrooms. It's printed by political officers. Friends, we're in trouble as a country. And the issue of marriage, and more importantly, the doctrine of what it means to be human is the most important issue of our day. And we must be ready to articulate and defend the biblical position on these issues. Dr. Rosario Butterfield was a professor of literature at Syracuse University in New York. She was an atheist, a lesbian, a feminist, and an outspoken advocate of the LGBTQ community. She was woke before woke even became a thing. She thought that Christians were the enemy and the Bible was an ancient book of myths and tales. But she made the acquaintance of a pastor and his wife, and they became friends. They invited her often to dinner just to dialogue with her, just to listen to her story, just to befriend her 
but then to gently challenge her to reevaluate all that she held to in her life. And then began to study the Bible together. And they challenged her. They said, you are a professor of literature at a major university. You know how to interpret texts. You know how to understand literature. Use those skills and begin to examine the Bible. And she was surprised by all the things that she found. She started going to church with them, though she continued in her lesbian relationships. But eventually the grace of God gripped her heart. And the truth broke through that she was marvelously converted to faith in Jesus Christ. And as she tells her story, she says that her main sin was not her homosexuality, though she's very clear that that is a sin. She said her main sin was idolatry. She wanted to worship the things that she had created. She wanted to serve the things that were important to her. She wanted to be at the center of her own life. And as she talks about Romans 1, she saw that Romans 1 spoke perfectly of her situation. Her conversion was radical. And it cost her a lot. Following Christ can be costly. She gave up her career. She lost her original group of friends. But today, and for many years, she is married to a pastor from the Reformed Presbyterian Church. She's a mother of several children that she homeschooled and now is a grandmother to several others. She has written several books which I recommend for your reading. Her most famous one is The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert where she details her journey from LGBTQ to faithful follower of Jesus Christ. In recent days, she has written a new book that I highly recommend and actually want to promote this morning. It is entitled, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. And I'm not sure if she ever actually had any dialogue with Dr. Zimmerman from Harvard or not, but she affirms many of the same things that he said. And we do well to listen to her story because she lived the lies that our culture is promoting. And she has found the truth and has walked away from it. And she encourages the church to develop relationships based on love and truth with our neighbors, but without compromise. And to be consistent and to be solid in our determination that through love and prayer and teaching of the truth, we'll be able to lead others to faith in Jesus Christ. She affirms in this book what Dr. Zimmerman had already revealed almost 100 years ago now, that there are only two genders, and our society will destroy itself if it keeps going along its current path. The church is warned that it is wrong and unloving to affirm people in a self-imposed lifestyle that will ultimately lead to their eternal destruction. We must love people enough to tell them the truth because Jesus has affirmed what the truth is. So we must stand on the truth, live the truth, love the truth, proclaim the truth, and help lead others to the truth, even, my friends, if it eventually means that we must do so from a prison cell because we live in a culture that is hostile to Christian truth. Jesus clearly tells us what it was like in the beginning. And therefore, we need to, sorry, got a little animated about what I was talking about. We need to see the blessed union, the blessed union. 
So Jesus goes on. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so we need to affirm and stake our eternal lives on the fact that as the designer of marriage, God is also the definer of marriage. And no other human authority, even the Supreme Court of a particular country, has no right to change that. And so... Yes, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because he is the same yesterday and today and forever, his view of marriage is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Is there a gremlin up there? I'll continue on, and hopefully our friends will catch up with what's going on here. But I'll read the passage again. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay, notice the clear and unambiguous terms. Man, woman, father, mother, husband, wife. I listen to enough of cultural dialogue to know that we have to say it again and again. These are both gender-exclusive and gender-specific terms. In marriage, a man leaves the home of his youth and enters into a new and intimate relationship with his wife, a relationship which now takes precedence over all other relationships. You see, marriage is not just a contract where there are conditions for keeping it going, but conditions in which it can be broken. Marriage is a covenant bond of exclusive commitment of one man to one woman. You see, in the holy mind of God, marriage is seen as permanent, and a relationship that triumphs over all others. For in that holy mind is God, the holiest mind that has ever existed. There is a holy triangle. On the one point is marriage, on the second point is sex, and on the third point is procreation. And they're designed by a good God to bring about human flourishing. But in our modern ways, we have done all that we can to separate those three sides. We glorify children outside of marriage. We glorify sex without the bond of marriage. Even glorifying marriage, it says we have no interest in having children. And all of this comes at a great cost to our culture. And we need to have eyes to see it. In God's design, a man and a woman come together. But there is a process. First, they give their hearts to one another. There is a commitment. There is a desire to be with one another. Secondly, they join their will in the giving of vows of commitment to one another. And then and only then do they give their bodies together to each other as a seal of that commitment. They are now one flesh. And in this one flesh, there is the joining of two lives, two hearts, and two bodies. And the act then of marital intimacy, which is expected of God, I would say even commanded by God, not only is the consummation of marriage, it is the confirmation of marriage, and in, and in fact the reenactment of it, the recognition of the continual coming together that is the sign and seal of the one flesh relationship. Marriage is designed in heaven. And we, we want to go back to the garden. We want to see how God brought it about. 
And Adam recognized enough about Eve that he recognized that they were enough alike to be together. But they were different enough to make it both interesting and complementary. They were created to be together as companions, as co-laborers, as focusing together on building a family, influencing culture, stewarding creation. Marriage is the closest and most intimate relationship we have, and God uses it both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament to express how he feels about his own people as the husband of Israel or as the bridegroom of the church. So marriage done God's way is good for people because a good God always gives good things and it's good for all involved, for men, for women, for children. It's good for society. It's good for culture. And the benefits of marriage are manifold. They promote the well-being, security, happiness, companionship, and satisfaction for both the man and the woman. And God's ways are simply the best way. We hesitate to talk about who we are as created beings, but part of who we are as created beings is that we are sexual beings. And yes, we need to talk about this subject with the propriety and respect that it deserves and the honor and sacredness of it. But let me just tell you, my friends, the statistics bear it out that marriage done God's way works well for men and women, especially those who are Christians, who are among the most satisfied married people on the planet. Against the lie that it is better to give a trial run before marriage, and whether we're compatible intimately, Statistics show that those who do that actually have a less satisfying relationship after marriage than those who wait until they are married. It is intended to be a blessed union and done God's way, and indeed is. Therefore, heed the serious warning. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In the mind of God, the marriage union is so important, it is so sacred, it's to be treated with such dignity and respect because it is the source of human flourishing. It is not to be dissolvable at the whim of human will. He clearly says, do not separate what God has brought together. Now, we live in a world where we have to live with ourselves and our sinful nature. We live in a world where there is a very real spiritual realm where the enemy of our souls wants to do everything that he can to destroy that which is holy and beautiful and lovely in the mind of God. And he has great weapons to tempt us to all kinds of things, all kinds of sexual sin, all kinds of promises of how wonderful sin can be and how fulfilling it will be, and he doesn't tell you that it comes with a hook and a great call. He appeals to our sense of our self-imposed autonomous nature that we can do what we want. And so he says, go ahead, experiment. He fights against the idea of self-control, against the idea of seeing marriage as holy and as beautiful, needing sacrifice and self-denial for its fulfillment for the man and for the woman. We need to be vigilant to guard our hearts. 
We just saw in the last chapter, Jesus warned, saying that temptations will come, but do not be the one through whom they come. So we need to be careful and encourage one another in holiness, walking in the ways of God and praying for one another to make good decisions and stand by what is true and right. And as we get to verse 9, we're going to come across this idea of porneia. That's the word that is used for sexual immorality as translated in verse 9. But that word is expanded to include anything that intentionally divides the marital union. That's why I had us read in our invitation passage this morning from Hebrews 13. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. God upholds a high view of marriage. It is a relationship that reflects his covenant love for his people. And when it is done God's way, it is this wonderful, marvelous reflection of hope and joy and pleasure and friendship and companionship. It shows that we serve a good God. But against a high view of marriage, we need to be aware of man's low view of marriage. As God ordained it, marriage was to be but with one man, with one woman, for one lifetime. And ordinarily, and almost always, in the mind of God, divorce is not allowed. In the case of death, of course, a man or a woman is free to remarry, though in the Lord, but often circumstances make even that difficult. But the Jews of Jesus' day wanted to know when marriage was allowed. So rather than go all the way back to the beginning, they wanted to go back to what Moses said. So they said, but Moses said, so after Jesus has given this very clear, pristine, perfect, wonderful view of marriage as found in the mind of God, only then does Jesus address the whole idea of a certificate of divorce. And it was the Pharisees who brought it up. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? If marriage is not to be separated, why does Moses speak of a certificate of divorce? So, before we get to Jesus' response, let's go to what Moses actually said. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency, indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and the text goes on to say that once he has given this certificate of divorce she is free to remarry but he is not free to marry her again so what is happening here now i draw your attention to the word that has provoked this whole conversation and that is the one that's found at the end of line three on our screen the word indecency has found in her some indecency. That is the word that has created all of this conversation. What does that mean, and how can it be applied? And that's where the schools began to differ in how to apply it. But we need to think back, if we can, what was the situation in which Jesus lived, but also what was the situation in which Moses lived? In the ancient world, an unmarried woman was left vulnerable. She was seen as being without value you recall that at the beginning of a marriage relationship a dowry was paid that would pay the father which would in part compensate for the loss of her labors in serving him once she joined another household 
upon marriage, she then became under the control of her husband for things of inheritance and how to be involved in society. And the husband had control over her. If he wanted to send her away, he held control over her. He could send her away, abuse her, mistreat her, humiliate her, and refuse to divorce her, which would then block her in this position where she had no way of advancing, no way of being set free. And so the requirement of the certificate of divorce was an act of mercy towards her. It set her free from the tyranny and control of her husband who had repudiated her. He could no longer just manipulate, manipulate her. He could no longer leave her just vulnerable. He could no longer impugn her reputation. She was now free to go and seek the friendship and, and cover and protection under another husband. Now, that may not be the experience in which we live today in our 21st century North American context, but it is the context in which millions upon millions of people still live today, where women are not given protection and therefore, the certificate of divorce was an act of mercy towards her to give her a place, to give her a legal status, to give her protection. But notice what is really said here. It was an allowance, not a command. This is concerning divorce. This, now we go back to what Jesus said. We're in verse 8. He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. So it's true, Moses did allow for divorce. Of course, this is under the inspiration of God. But he did not command that there be a divorce. He just said, if there is a divorce, the command is give her a certificate of divorce so that she would be free to marry again, to find provision and protection under the cover of another husband. If she did not have this, she could be accused of all kinds of sins, be seen as a social pariah, have her character attacked, and that would render her unmarriable. In an odd way, the certificate of divorce not only gave protection to women, it also tamed the man. Because once divorced, he could no longer manipulate and have control, and he couldn't remarry her again. He couldn't punish her again and again and again. She was now free from being out from under his control. So the Pharisees, as they looked at this word, what does indecency mean in Deuteronomy 24? They want to focus on the reasons for divorce. But Jesus says that's not the place to start. He wants to focus on the purpose for marriage. And so he says that we need to go back to the beginning. As we see God, as he interacts with his people, as he shows his character and how he provides, protects, guides, leads, saves, judges, God is not a bigamist. God is not a polygamist. God is not a serial adulterer. He is in a faithful covenant commitment to his people. And he expects his people to reflect that in their covenant commitment to their spouses. So divorce does happen. But it was not part of God's original plan. Divorce is allowed to happen because of the hardness of heart. A hardness of heart that shows itself in resistance to the ways of God. A hardness of heart that shows itself in coldness to others, to one's spouse. That shows itself in either the inability to receive forgiveness or the unwillingness to extend it. Now, all of those things are mentioned in Matthew 18, where humility and mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation were keys to covenant living in the church. 
And if they're accused of covenant living in the church, how much more are they accused of covenant living within the context of marriage? So yes, Moses allowed exceptions for divorce, but that's not the ideal. We need to start with God and then we move to man. Not start with men and then move to God. Jesus very clearly here in words that are unmistakably difficult for us to hear. Does not allow divorce for the willy-nilly will of man. Divorce may be permitted. Divorce is never commanded. We'll find out next week when we look at part two of this series that these words were hard even for the original readers of Jesus to hear. But the one who spoke them is the one who transcends time, who sees the beginning from the end, who is the Alpha and the Omega. And so for him, marriage is serious. Marriage is not a game. In our sin-sick culture, we play games with marriage and sex. We think sex is just a harmless activity with no victims done outside of God's plan, but that's not true. A person can make a lot of money showing themselves off in pornography on the Internet, but they're also building up the wrath of God against them for the day of judgment. Pornography is not a victimless crime, nor is any other sexual sin. A woman who is involved in pornography may be already a victim, and that's why she's forced into it, but she may enter into it willingly, and she still is degrading herself and losing some of her feminine charm and ultimate beauty. A man may be involved in pornography and find that for a season it gives a measure of pleasure, but he's actually hurting and degrading himself. He's hurting and degrading women in general. And that becomes harmful then to the marriage relationship, harmful to men, harmful to women, harmful to children, because no sexual sin is ultimately victimless. There is a group, I'm not going to give their name, but their sole purpose is to help people have affairs, to meet online and to meet for indiscretions. And their subline is, life is short have an affair. Now, if ever there was a sentence that came from the pit of hell, that is it. Sexual sin always is damaging. Therefore, we need to take seriously what God says when he says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. If we want to experience God's way, God's blessing, and God's plan, we must do it his way. He very clearly says he hates divorce, and he hates the things that lead to it. That's why the words here for sexual adultery, sexual immorality, is any sexual expression outside of marriage because it is offensive to God. So the ideal then in the mind of God is to live as if divorce is not an option. To live faithfully to our spouses by the blessings and grace of God. Carol and I have been married for over 31 years. And when we were going through our pre-marriage counseling and reading many books together and studying, I turned to her and said, the word divorce is not in our vocabulary. It does not exist in our dictionary. 
I give that same counsel to every couple that I'm preparing for marriage. When we go into marriage, according to God's way, you go into marriage knowing the only sanctioned way out of it is in a coffin. Till death do us part. That is how God designed it. And we need to take back this higher view of marriage in a culture that promotes its cheap imitation. But there is sin. And so divorce is allowed in the case of porneia, adultery and sexual immorality. And Jesus is very clear here. He's not speaking with a forked tongue. It is only allowed in cases where the actual marriage relationship has been attacked and has been broken by outside forces and infidelity. We live in a state that introduced to our culture the concept of no-fault divorce. And now it's nationwide, no-fault divorce, or divorce for irreconcilable differences. Rebels. God can reconcile any relationship that is willing to work together. There are many steps of counseling and training and short-term separation that can happen before we just rush off to the divorce court. But God recognizes that when there is porneia, when there is the interruption, when there is violation of that intimate union between a man and a wife, where that original covenant relationship has been violated, then, in a sense, marriage has come to an end and divorce is allowed. Allowed not always required, because God can heal any relationship. He makes it clear. If divorce happens, and it is not for sexual immorality, then the next marriage begins in adultery. I wish I didn't have to be the one to say that. But I'm just saying what Jesus said. And I love the Lord enough to just say whatever his word says. causes us to squirm that causes us to feel an angst because maybe we haven't done a good enough job of presenting marriage of living out marriage of following, we follow too much in the culture and not enough of what God says we have followed our autonomous nature I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it with whom I want to do it whenever I want to do it God doesn't say that. God says there, these are the conditions. And I think Dr. David Platt captures it well when he says God is so serious about our marriage covenant because he is serious about his marriage covenant with us. So if divorce happens, it brings pain. It brings brokenness. It brings suffering. And those things are not just washed away just because there's been a paper signed. The goal should always be, as we see in Matthew 18, working towards reconciliation, working towards restoration. Divorce should never be seen as the first option, but only the last resort, and always with great disappointment and sadness. Think about where this lands in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 18 talks about, how often should my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seventy-seven times in an unlimited manner. And in the very next, next chapter, 
God says, I don't allow divorce. Now, they're talking about two different things, of course, two different subjects. But in the providence of God, they're side by side. And if we're to practice that 77 times forgiveness with others in the church, then how much more in the most important human relationship we have, which is marriage. At some level, divorce is a result of sin. Paul will later add one clause of abandonment, but that clause is not to be so expanded that we use it to include everything. Our culture is living in open defiance against God. And we're in trouble if we don't change our ways. Are we really better off because of our libertarian sexual ethics? I think we all know the answer. We are not. And so the only way back then is God's way. I know the statistics. I know what they say about who gets divorced and how often. I know what they say about those who claim to be church members who get divorced and how often. I also know that if the Bible speaks clearly that many of them are for unbiblical reasons. And therefore, like any other sin, repentance is required. Jesus is going to make it even harder next week saying that often if you've been divorced, you can't get married again. And they respond to that, saying that this is the case. And so we'll come back next week and look at what he is saying there. That might stick in our craw. It did for the people in the first century. And we need to at least wrestle with it at the level that it deserves that this is a tough message and that yes God at times is gracious and merciful to allow remarriage but we must not be willy nilly in how we go about it we must take it very seriously what those conditions are that's a tough message we need a word of hope And that is that God is a forgiving and compassionate God. And he calls us to do the same with others. But when we hear about sin and wrong, the response is repentance and a recognition of wrong. And in no case are we allowed to abuse or misuse the grace of God. Not long after Jesus said these words, he went to a cross to die for the very sins that he mentions here, that he's mentioned all throughout the gospel according to Matthew. Therefore, he has the right to set the terms and conditions for marriage and divorce. But he's also a God who is merciful. If you're in a marriage relationship today, stick with it. No exceptions. You work at it you get the counseling you need, you get the help that you need, and you stay with it. And you take seriously what Jesus has said here. Next week, we're going to get to part two of this very important and very difficult message. And then Jesus is going to bring in the idea of children. Jesus is clear to talk about marriage and family and children. And some, he says, will be called, because of sin, to celibacy. 
another challenging time in the Word. But that's how it goes. We go through the Word of God so that the Word of God goes through us. But what are some lessons that we can take from today's sermon? Because God has a holy view of marriage, we will resist any effort to redefine or downgrade that view. God's ways work best. Secondly, because marriage, because God is holy, we will pursue holiness in our marriages in thought, word, and deed. Do everything you can to protect your covenant relationships. And thirdly, because marriage is designed by God for human flourishing, we commit to making our marriages the all that they can be in Christ. I don't know about you, but I want all that God has for me in Christ in every aspect of my life. I want to know the word of God more so that I can understand him more. I want to pray more so I can see him answer my prayers more. I want to experience more joy in the spirit because he's promised that. I want to have the best possible marriage I can have because God promises to bless us as we do things his way. And lastly, because God's ways are best, we will model for and teach our children and grandchildren to walk in these ways. As we think about these things this week and as we go out, take time with the word of God open in front of you and ask him to speak to your heart, to understand the text, to take seriously what Jesus himself is saying, and then cry out and ask for his help. Because the Father does know best. And he is really good at blessing his children who do things his way. Let's pray. Father, help us. We are a people of unclean lips, and we live among a people of unclean lips. And we've made a mess of what you have given to us as your best gift to us. So help us, Lord. I pray that you would stir within us the desire to see that, yes, your ways are good, they are beneficial, they bring great blessing, they bring great hope, and they pass on who you are to the next generation. But we need your help, Father, to grow in your vision of what you have given to man and to woman in marriage. And as we live in a culture where we, are, we hear lies dozens of times a day, where lies can race halfway around the world before truth puts its boots on to respond, Father, help us to stay close to your word. And even if we're ridiculed by a sin-sick culture, Help us to stand firm in what you have said because it has eternal significance. And then, Father, bring in grace and mercy for those who recognize their need to repent, who recognize their need to make things right. And in the cleansing that comes from Christ, gird them up and strengthen them and encourage them in the ways of God. Father, I pray that we would encourage one another, and I pray that we would humble ourselves before you and recognize our great need for you. And so, Lord, we turn to you and say, help, and then we say, thanks, because you will bring that help. So guide us this week, Father, 
prepare us for what is to come. Use us in your service as we commit ourselves to you anew and afresh. In Jesus' name, amen.